Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is a special episode. I'm thrilled to have Gene Trowbridge with us. He's the founding partner of Trowbridge Law Group, LLP. His practice concentrates on the syndication of commercial and investment real estate through both debt and equity. Uh, between Gene's individual syndication practice and the firm's legal practice, the partners in the firm have written offers for more than $5 billion of capital raised. The median offering size is $2.5 million. His practice writes offers for Rule 506B and 506C, uh, both Regulation D and Regulation A. But what I'm excited about today is that normally we do an interview and, and some back and forth. Today, Gene has got a presentation on syndication for us. I have a feeling this is going to be a piece of content for us to be able to use for a long time to come. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to dive in. If you're listening to this, consider finding time to come watch it as well, because we're going to have a visual component here. Without further ado, Gene, welcome. How are you? Well, I'm fine, Devin. Good morning to you. As we are recording this, I am having my first cup of coffee here in California. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, th thanks for joining us so early. I thought uh, 9, 9 a.m. was an early podcast in Texas, and then and then, um, you know, you're at seven. So I almost feel like I appreciate the sacrifice here. Oh, no, it's, it's just fine. And so as you said to, the, uh, uh, to your listeners, I'm going to do a slide presentation. And, and I think it'll be lively enough that um, they'll stay awake. <laughs> I, I think, think so. They will. I've I got, think so. Um, if they came here, they're, they're, you know, they came this far. They're eager to learn from Thirsting your, for knowledge. That's right? it. That's it. And, and we'll see what we can do to keep them keep them going. Um, it's a it's a basic uh, presentation. I go through what I think is a good story, and I've got some updates. Like there's been some some changes in the accredited investor rule that I've updated this for. And so, um, twenty minutes, twenty five minutes, and then we'll have questions, Kevin. We'll, Fantastic. We'll, and you know you can. I don't know what you want to do with your audience, but you can interrupt me at any time. Uh, just just speak up because I kind of get on a roll. <laughs> and speak up, and uh, we'll uh, we'll do this any way you want it. Any way you want to do that. Outstanding. I, I'm a fan of taking notes while the speaker is presenting, and then kind okay. of following up with questions at the end, so we don't disturb the the cadence here. But I'll, okay. I'll certainly have some questions Good. for you if, um, that I'll just take notes throughout the presentation here. All right. Good. Well, thank you. So as Devin said, uh, my uh, law firm is Trowbridge Law Group. And uh, this is a, uh, an evolution of uh, a couple partnerships I've been in for the last six, seven years. And uh, right now there are six of us, of course, and we're virtual. Uh, interestingly enough, even with the COVID issue, that didn't make any difference because we were virtual in the first place. I'm here actually with my COVID haircut. Uh, <laughs> I'm here in uh, Orange County, California. Uh, my law partner, Jonathan, is in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's been with me for about five years. Uh, Dave Utley, my uh, operations manager, has been with me for 12 years. He's down in San Diego and in, in basically in wine country in Temecula, which is wonderful. And then my daughter, Emily, every good company needs a millennial who handles uh, social media. She lives in LA. 
the longest relationship I have is with Carrie Dunn, who's out of Nashville. And uh, I've been with Carrie about 15 years. And if any of your people or you have ever been to any of my live events, she's the redhead that tells you to sit down and shut up when it's time to, uh, to eat and do that. She coordinates all of our marketing. And then Tim Ivey once again lives in Temecula and he's in charge of our uh, computers and everything. So uh, I've got a good team, um, long relationship with everyone, and I'm excited about, uh, about that. So let's get into it. Um, let's see if I can get this to move. The problem is this. Okay, now I'll move. Well, it will help. It will, just a second. Sometimes when I touch it, the screen gets too big and it won't move, but I can deal with that. Yeah, we were talking about this screen earlier. For those of you that are, that are just listening, that Gene's got this really nice, go. uh, <laughs> really nice touch screen. What is that, a 60 inch screen behind you? There? Uh, 55. Yeah. It's 55. And nice it's a computer. Yeah, and it's a screen, and it's but I just use it for presentation. So, as as Devin said, um, my experience is a syndicator. I've really had like three careers. I was a commercial broker, a real estate broker. I was um, syndicator for about 12, 15 years, doing primarily building self storage facilities here in in Southern California. Uh, a lot of syndications, a lot of properties. I think we did about, I think we did 24 properties. And at my height of insanity, I sent out uh, 1,676 K1s in one year. And I, I came home uh, to my wife and we sat around the kitchen table, Devin, where all the great decisions and lives are always made. And I said, you know, I'm out of here. I, I either have to grow, which is going to be, a, a problem, or I think I'll go to law school <laughs> for the last 15 years of my career. So 27 years ago, I went to law school and most people do it the other way around. They're lawyers and then they become syndicators. But I, I went this way and so I've been practicing for a very long time. I was a CCIM instructor, if any of your people know about that for 40 years. I retired two years ago, wrote a book. Uh, it's a whole new business. And I'm an old runner, um, run a lot of half marathons since I was 60. Uh, the most recent one was in Temecula two weeks ago. And at, at seven miles, uh, we hit 108 degrees. And when we finished, it was 111. And <laughs> it was brutal. It was the virtual Kauai half marathon, which I run every year. But Devin, because we couldn't go to Kauai, uh, they created this opportunity for a virtual one. It would have been much easier to run in Hawaii than it was in, in the desert of Temecula. That's I'm sure. sure. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's pretty darn good. And I don't know how it works. I've run 37 half marathons since I'm 60 and I've gained 25 pounds. And I can't tell you it's muscle. <laughs> it must be the carbon, the carb loading afterwards with the beer, right? That makes no sense, right? <laughs> no sense at all. So there we go. So uh, here's how all your passives start. Here's how all of us started in the business, Devin. We wanted to buy something ourselves. Many people are still out there figuring how are they going to buy the first 
property and oftentimes it's a single family, it's a two unit, it's a four unit. And um, typically it's, it's the investor or the investor and their spouse who um, wanna buy a property. And we would always advise them to uh, form an LLC and take title to that property in an LLC for asset protection. So if someone slips and falls in the bathroom, uh, they can't sue you for everything they have. They can only sue you for this property. And uh, generally I'm gonna say it's a single member. Like I said, it could be a husband and wife or whatever. But that's the way we all start. And uh, I'm gonna throw a little jargon at you. That's a member managed LLC. And that'll be important later in the discussion. So like, I don't know if that's where you started, but that's where I started. And finally, I'd done enough of those single family houses that I thought, gosh, if I just had 10 single family houses, but they were stacked on top of each other, <laughs> like an apartment building, wouldn't that be great? So I went out to look to buy an apartment building and by God, um, I didn't have, oh, where are we going? This really works better than, I didn't have enough money to buy the property that I wanted to buy by myself. So that's where most syndicators started. You don't have enough money of your own to buy all the real estate you want. So you have to pool money. Now, right now, here's my consumer protection message. If you have enough money to buy all the real estate you want, it may not be all the real estate in the world, but whatever you're comfortable with, don't be a syndicator. Don't practice on all these investors if you're not gonna like it and it's not gonna work. Not everyone should be a syndicator. There's no, there's no doubt about the people skills that are needed to be a syndicator. So once you start pooling money from other people, you're actually in the syndication business. I get a lot of questions, Devin, when I, uh, people call me for what I consider their homework call. They call and say, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. I'd like to get four or five people together and I don't want to make it a syndication. Well, that's the wrong question. They're going to get four or five people together in a syndication, which is just simply pooling resources and management to do some business activity. And, but they really, the question is they don't want it to be a security. All right. So uh, we're all doing syndication and then somewhere along the line, crowdfunding, uh, the word crowdfunding snuck into our vocabulary, and it's really exactly the same thing. There is a regulation crowdfunding that we don't use very often in real estate that came to us from the Jobs Act, where you can raise roughly a million dollars, but you and you have to market it on online. You have to go through a broker dealer, a crowdfunding portal. And we just don't we just don't use it. Typically, it's for someone who wants to buy a property for an Airbnb, or they want to brew their own beer, and they want to raise you know a couple hundred thousand dollars. And that's an advertise. That's fine, but that's not generally what we do. We're going to pool our uh, pool our money, and for those passives who are out there, uh, investing as a passive in a real estate syndication is a great way to invest in your IRA. Uh, get yourself a self-directed IRA with at least some of your IRA money and go out and invest in uh, 
some real estate activities. You can invest, cannot invest in the stock market through a self-directed IRA, but you can diversify and invest in real estate. So that's that's pretty that's pretty exciting. Now that changes everything. You need more people. So what we have is we still have the investment LLC that's up there to own the property, no change. But now we have multiple members. And in order to manage the multiple members, we need a manager. We need like someone like Devin and his company to be the managing member of the LLC. And then sometimes we need an enhancer. Sometimes the lender says, hey, you need a little more net worth. You need a little liquidity. You need a key principal, a sponsor, an angel, whatever you want to call them. I call them enhancers because no one else calls them enhancers. So that's kind of the structure of what a real estate uh, syndication looks like. And uh, these are the documents that your syndication attorney uh, your SEC type of attorney drafts. We form the LLC, we write the operating agreement, we form this LLC. I'm gonna come back to that, but I th think we need to have more than one person in there. I'm pretty sure about that. And I'll talk about that at the end. Um, we form this entity, we write the operating agreement, that entity, we write the operating agreement. We write the subscription agreement, the offering questionnaire so that the investors can fill that out and invest. And let's go through that with a little different set of words. When we have investors investing money in a common enterprise, and they do it because they expect a profit, there's a profit motive here. Other than that, it's GoFundMe. Hey, I need to go to vacation, send me some money. No profit motive, okay? That's the old crowdfunding. Okay, but investors invest money in a common entity with a profit motive, but all the profit is going to happen because of the activities of the manager. We have a security. If you take this box away, we don't have a security because we have members managing their own investment. We're back to a member managed LLC, but you get too many members, you can't make any decisions. So, and you need someone who's got real estate experience, time and energy and some financial stability to make it happen. And that's, that's what's there in the manager, in the manager box. So all those words that I just used are what the securities law in a court case in the 1940s decided an investment contract was and everything uh, Devin, that you do and your listeners invest in, in the way of real estate or, or loan funds or whatever is an investment contract. That's the term that's in the definition of a security. And it, the court case said, hey, let's look at this and let's decide what an investment contract is. And it was a real estate case. And uh, the court said, you know, in this case, the people bought land and they, uh, in part of an agricultural farm, and the agricultural company said they would take care of all the, the citrus trees. They'd harvest, they'd produce, they'd share the profits with you. The investors didn't do anything. 
And uh, the court said, hey, that's a security, an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit solely through the efforts of the promoter. So the manager LLC box is really the key because almost everything we do in a member managed LLC is the first three. You're investing your money in that LLC. You expect a profit for it, but no one else is running your money. This really creates the picture where, Devin, you have passive investors and you have the syndicator. Okay. So there's a reason for the government to regulate situations where there is a group of investors and there is a manager. And those are the two major points of the securities law. Uh, one is full disclosure. That's why you write a PPM because the investors are, are supposed to be giving, given all the important information ahead of time so they can make an informed decision. And the only way you can do that is put it in writing, give it to them all at the same time, so they all get the same information. And then we need to probably regulate who's out there raising the money. So the second security law deals with who are the people. The people are um, the syndicators and the people who sell securities and that created a whole licensing, uh, a licensing world. You don't need a license to be a syndicator. You don't need a securities license. It's like for sale by owner in real estate. You can sell your own real estate uh, without a license, but you can't sell mine. So you can create a security. You can create investment LLC and sell those securities to the members as long as it's your own creation and it's your own offering. And in the securities laws, it's called the issuer exemption. You can issue your own securities and you don't need a license, so that's good. So we're really back to the one rule, which is full disclosure. So here's the flow chart. We've got two ways to go. Is it a security, which is the question? Well, no, if it's member managed and there's no manager box, it's not a security. So you can forget all the rest of this stuff. But if it's a manager managed, yes, it's a security. Now, every security has to be registered with the SEC unless it's exempt. So we wanna do our offerings exempt from registration. It's easier, it's cheaper, it's not needed. We're not going on Wall Street. We're not generally advertising. It's not a public offering. So we want to go where it's exempt. And if you're looking at any offerings and you're reading any private placement memorandums, somewhere along the line, like on the first page, you're going to see that this offering is written uh, along with Regulation D. And Regulation D was carved out of the original securities laws to give private placements exemption from registration. And Regulation D has been around for a very, very, very long time. And in the modern world, starting with 1981, which is what I think the modern world of the syndication in Reg D was, uh, they created something called Rule 506. 
And in Rule 506, which is really in this box, this is what they created in 81, uh, a syndicator could raise as much money as they want from unlimited accredited investors, people who are rich and smart, who didn't need the government to protect them. Um, because there's no advertising, the syndicator would know if the person who's checking the box and saying they're accredited really is. If you went to invest in one of Devin's deals and you checked the box on the offering questionnaire that you're accredited, he should know you well enough uh, to know if, if, if that's the truth. Okay. And that's good enough. And in 81, in order to promote capital formation, they came along and said, well, let's let 35 people who aren't rich and smart, let's them, let them invest also. We're going to manage the risk so that the most people who can lose all their money who are, are not rich and smart is 35. That's just a risk management number. And uh, if you have a sophisticated investor, if you have just one, you've got to have a PPM. Because the rich and smart people, they say they can fend for themselves and they can ask the questions they need to ask. But um, uh, the sophisticated, we can't trust them to ask the right questions. So we need to uh, do a PPM. Well, that, and you can't advertise. Everyone has to have a pre-existing relationship. I <laughs> say pre-existing condition, that's great. Huh? A pre-existing relationship and, with the sponsor, which means that before the offering comes out, Devin uh, needs to know you. If I were still doing syndication, I'd need to know you. Your, um, oh, one way of looking at it is as a syndicator, your database freezes when you bring your offering out. You can add new people, but they can't invest in this deal. Okay. Uh, well, in the Jobs Act in 2012, once again, Congress wanted to promote capital formation. So, so as an example, when I was syndicating under 506, I could sell to all the accredited investors I knew, but that was only a handful because I couldn't advertise and find new accredited investors. And accredited investors could invest with everyone there was like me, but because I couldn't, people like myself couldn't advertise, they didn't know very many sponsors. So Congress said, well, let's let these accredited investors go out and find more people like Gene, and let's let Gene go out and find more accredited investors. So they said, let's split 506 and let's leave the way it was and call it 506B. But let's start with a new way of doing it, which allows advertising and solicitation. And we're gonna call it 506C. Now, not many changes. You can still raise all the money you want from all the accredited investors there are out there. Uh, but because you don't know the accredited investors, uh, checking the box isn't good enough. We have to do some sort of uh, research, some sort of uh, testing. It. The, the word is the sponsor has to take steps to be reasonably assured that the investors are accredited. Not that the people that they advertise to are accredited, because you can't control where your advertisement goes. 
Um, so you can build your database with all sorts of people, but the only people who can invest are accredited. And we suggest that you have a private placement memorandum because how can you tell everyone exactly the same story all the time? Uh, put it in writing, give it to them, and that's fine. Um, no sophisticated investors because we're advertising it. Now, I'll give you a little background, Devin. Uh, the last 12 months that the SEC did their research on, on private placements, the money that was raised was $1.8 trillion. This is the last 12 months from, from now uh, as we well, speak? Well, uh, ending in, um, I think the last report was July of last year. They sure. do it every 12 months. And because of COVID, they didn't do it this year. But they're having a presentation next week that I think they'll probably up, be updated. But that isn't really important. What's important is that's more money than, in, than was raised on Wall Street in the same 12 months. That's incredible. This that's an incredible step. Yep. And 97% uh, of the private placement money in the United States is raised in Regulation D, Rule 506. 97%. Is there a split between that? That's a tremendous stat. Uh, is, is the lion's share of that B or is it? Yes, 90% uh, of the money yep. is in B. And the reason for that is uh, many, all, all my clients who have done deals, done a number of deals, don't need new investors. And they don't want to ask their accredited investors to go through some verification. Just right. let them check the, check the box. Yep. And in fact, my most, my most prolific syndicator, Devin, has done 112 deals with me in the last six years. Wow. Between, you know, three and seven million. And uh, does 506B, accredited investor only, mm -hmm. no advertising, and three years ago froze his database. Doesn't take any new investors. Doesn't need new investors. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's at his discretion to say, hey, we, just because we could have 35 sophisticated, we don't want to deal with it. And that's, that's right. Yeah. So isn't that, uh, isn't that interesting? So there's a real small number of 506C offerings out there. I think, I think the number was like 1.4 trillion came through 506B and uh, 300 1.4 trillion in 506B and 300 million in 506C. Now that's not all real estate. That's all private placements. So real estate actually is a, a minority of all the money that's raised, but it's still seven, $800 billion a year in private placements in real estate. So that's a lot of money. So that's where we are. Most of the time, your investors are gonna be faced or presented with a 506B offering that doesn't allow for advertising. They're gonna see a PPM, they're gonna be asked to fill out an offering questionnaire and they're on the way. Okay. So what's, what's a rich and smart person? Well, in 81, they came out with the definition of accredited investor. Two things, just dollar and cents, flat out. If your net worth individually or in your household is a million, you're accredited. If your income as an individual taxpayer is 200,000, you're accredited. If you're married, married, filing jointly, it's 300. Dodd-Frank came out in 2008, 2009 and said, let's take the primary residence out of people's net worth 
as an attempt to see, are these people really rich and smart or did they buy an oceanfront in California in 1945? And they still live there on social security, but they're mega wealthy. Okay. So we took that out. That was a big deal. That costs us about 25% of the accredited investors in the United States. Sure. And so that's the way it's been going. In, in last month in August, uh, the SEC published regulations at 60 days after they've been published, which makes it about November 1st. We're going to add to that. And what we're adding is kind of interesting. Conceptually wise, they've decided that maybe the simple dollar and cent rule doesn't take into consideration people's education and training. And instead of having people take a test, <laughs> they've decided to do a couple things right now. And there's probably going to be more coming. But the first thing they've decided is if you're in the business of selling securities, you're a registered representative, you're a financial, uh, you're a registered investment advisor, you have one of those three securities licenses, 765 or 82, you're in the business. Let's, let's just not worry about your net worth and your income. Okay. Some people commented on that and said, well, if you're in the business and you don't have $200,000 of income, maybe you're not smart. Well, what about the the first two or three years you're in the business, you're struggling. You're still working. You still know all this stuff. So that's good. And then I love this one. It's called spousal equivalency. And I highlighted the word married. If you're married and file a joint return and your income is 300 or your net worth is a million, you're accredited. What about the households that are out there where they're not married? Okay. I can think of senior citizens who are widows and widowers who get together and live together, but don't want to be married. It's a household, right? I can see two um, widows getting together in a house and living together. I can see uh, two women, two men who aren't going to get married for any number of reasons, but it's a household. So they said, well, let's let them combine. So if the two incomes equal 300 and the combined net worth is a million in the household, they're accredited. I think that's pretty strong. Uh, the next one is uh, family offices, IRAs, and 401ks. There's always been an issue of, well, do you have to go through the entity to, be, to see the people in the background? Who's accredited and who isn't? And... Uh, they kind of changed that and said, if it's a family office, if it's an IRA or if it's 401k and it has $500,000 of assets, the entities accredited. We don't care if there's 13 people in the family office and some are 21 and whatever, you know, and if, if, if my IRA has 5 million in assets, I'm accredited anyhow. So let's just stop at the entity level and say that the entity itself is accredited and it's 5 million in assets. Okay. And then the other one, and this is, I'll just tell this brief story. I heard an SEC examiner say that uh, they were wrestling with a lady who worked on wall street, who was single and she did analysis for one of the big public REITs. 
She owned an apartment. Uh, she rented an apartment in New York. She had $900,000 in the bank. She made $187,000. She was not accredited. She could not even invest in her own company's offerings, even though she was doing all the underwriting. So here comes a little more of let's add sophistication with it. So knowledgeable employees of the sponsor can invest in the sponsor's deals, whether they're accredited or not. They're just going to call them accredited. So if you have people in your office who are working on your offerings, and in the past, you know, you took them in as sophisticated, and you had to count them as 35, well, some of the 35, you can now take them in as accredited. That's very that's interesting. Cool. So, so we're seeing this new standard being rolled out um, November timeframe. Is there right. more depth? Because that, that's very interesting to our office and I'm sure plenty of other, other sponsors. Is there a, a additional depth to that knowledgeable <laughs> definition or is that, is that kind of it? Yeah, the regulations are 163 pages and I couldn't get it on this slide. Right. Okay, so you can go to the SEC, you can find those regulations and, uh, and, and do that. I don't think it's the person who comes in on Tuesdays and Fridays and waters the plants. Right. I don't, I don't think that's it, you know, you have some common sense. But uh, I, think that, I think that's good. Now, uh, what are we doing with these? We're not doing anything with these until we start writing offerings where the offering period will start after November 1st. Right. Because we don't want to confuse anyone. And you know, a sponsor doesn't have to deal with this. A sponsor can just say, no, I'm happy with what I, with where I am. This is all too confusing. Especially in 506B, we're just going to check the box. You, you have over a million. Are you married filing jointly? Do you have 300? Let's just leave it at that. Right. That's always the starting point. This would be just clarification and making it broader. All right, so we're just about through here. Um, how many accredited investors are there? There's all sorts of 11.2 million households who qualify on the income. But uh, overall, there's 16 million households and that's 13% of all households. So now with advertising, if you wanna advertise, you can go out and, and attract all those people. And the strategy might be to advertise on a 506C offering, which a lot of my newer clients want to do, newer syndicators, build your database, build a relationship with them, and in the future do 506B offerings. Might work. Four questions a passive investor should ask. Now, I... I commented on one of these at the beginning where I said, I think the manager should have more than one member. So Devin's got an offering out there. Let's say he has an offering out there and he comes to me and says, Gene, do you want to invest? And I say, well, yeah, it's a good offering. I can invest 50,000 in that. But Devin, what happens if something happens to you? You've got to solve that. First, you won't get my money if it's just Devin. You've right. got to solve for continuity. Uh, you know, you're going to go to the bank and you're going to sign the mortgage. Property managers can't take over that responsibility. You need more than one warm body in the manager entity. And in fact, uh, many of the 
many of the Delaware uh, Fannie and Freddie loans that are formed that have to be formed in Delaware will require a second person, even if it's what they call a springing member. They'll just require continuity. So just deal with it. Uh, number two, the investor should ask, hey, Devin, have you done this before? Okay. We've all had to say no. <laughs> this is my first deal. Okay. And uh, how do you answer that after you've said no? Do you have experience? Do you have education? Do you have something that's going to get your closest associates to invest with you? So I say, get your first deal done. Don't make it a huge deal. Just get it done so that when I ask Evan, have you, Devin, have you done this before? He's, he's going to say, hell yes, once. <laughs> that's all I care about. Yep. That's all I care about. Yep. Huge distinction. <laughs> Number three, will the sponsor have skin in the game? And you all think that I'm saying, will the sponsor invest cash? That's true. But what about the sponsor signing on the mortgage? There's more to skin in the game than just cash. In fact, I write my offerings where the minimum investment might be 100000 But I let the sponsor put in a smaller number because the sponsor is going to sign the mortgage. And if the marketplace accepts the smaller cash number from the sponsor, along with signing the mortgage as adequate skin in the game, let the market decide that. So that's probably something you hadn't heard before. You hadn't heard before, Devin. Um, and then the last thing this, the syndic, the uh, passive should ask, uh, Devin, what happens if something happens to me? and I need my money back. And if, if you had used me as an attorney and you'd read your documents, you'd say, you know what we need to do is we need to look at Article 11 and 12 in the operating agreement, which covers liquidity. We have professionally drafted documents. We cover liquidity on a voluntary basis. You just wanna sell it, you wanna give it to your kids. And we cover liquidity on an involuntary basis. Okay, here comes a divorce. Here comes a bankruptcy. Here comes a death. How are we going to deal with that? And the operating agreement has all that covered. So those are four good questions. And what's going on in COVID? Just briefly, we're all expecting decreased rent collections. I'm talking primarily about multifamily. Sure. And it hasn't been as great as everyone thinks yet. Um, because of that, we were worried about mortgage delinquency and forbearances. And I don't know how many active funds there are out there, but we've written about 900 offerings since 2014. And I don't have one client who's come to me and said, Gene, how are we going to deal with the forbearance issue? We just haven't seen that yet. Maybe it's early. Uh, but we have had clients who come to us and say, what are we going to do about cash distribution? And the first thing you can do as a manager is just Postpone it. You know, I define distributable cash as whatever Devin says it is. <laughs> you know the property. We're hiring you to manage it. You can tell us if we should distribute this quarter or not. And one of the things about sophisticated and accredited investors is they, they probably don't need the check to buy groceries. Right. They're probably more interested in protecting their principal. So the first step you'd take is to hold back on distributions. Then um, if needed, uh, we write in the documents that the manager can make loans. 
And we cover in the document that if the manager does make a loan, there's a stated interest rate, it'll get paid back before distributions start again. Then we write in there, well, what if we can't get enough money just from the manager or any money? Can we go to individual members? Can we ask individual members on a volunteer basis to make loans? And we cover that in the document. We generally leave the uh, rate and term negotiable, but we do say that if there are member loans outstanding, they get paid back first before we resume capital distributions. And if we can't do any of that stuff, we may have to have a capital call and then how is that run? Well, you can tell from the operating agreement, how is that uh, done? Generally, we write a capital call that's gonna take a big vote of people to um, approve it, but not everyone has to make the capital call and realistically, they're not going to. So we have some plan for that. And then the last thing I've seen in, in the COVID discussion is people thinking there's gonna be a lot of foreclosures, a lot of trouble, and we're getting people calling us about blind pools. Hey, if I raise enough money up front and I go to the market with cash, can I, uh, can I make a good investment? Well, we haven't seen that many troubled properties, so, so far I'm just telling people to hold off on that. Um, I've been around for a number of these bad cycles. And I know when there's blood on the streets and I know when there's a good time for a blind pool. And in my opinion, we're not there yet. So that's what I have to say. And that's it. I went a little longer than I, than I should have. Sorry. No, this is fantastic. And I, I really appreciate the detail and the color and depth of your experience on this. I know people are going to get a lot of value out of it. So thank you. Um, I, I wrote down a couple, a bunch of questions. If you, if you have a minute for a few, the, the new accreditor definition, the expanded accreditor investor, uh, accredited investor definitions that are coming down here in November of 2020. I've heard, you know, varying things from varying uh, groups. Is your sense that this is a, is this a big change or this is just kind of a minor change and we'll, we'll continue to see minor tweaks to it over time? I think right now it's pretty much much to do about nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've heard that there are about 700,000 um, securities licensees. They're all now accredited. Okay, so how many were accredited beforehand? I don't know. Right. So I think that might be a big, uh, that might be a big thing. I like the espousal equivalency. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. And uh, certainly the ease at which we uh, say that an entity is accredited is, uh, is important. Right, right. There's always been a lot of talk in my experience around this definition of pre-existing relationship. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you counsel your clients that consists of? It's not a Facebook-like, but it's not necessarily, you know, a family member either. It's somewhere in between, right? Is there, is there a comment you have around, sure. hey, you got a sure. new syndicator doing a 506B. They need to have a pre-existing mm -hmm. relationship. But what exactly does that mean? Well, actually the SEC, and I don't have it in this slide, but the SEC has some definition on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to mount a defense against a charge, you know, the deal goes bad, investor sues you and said, you know, he sent me a postcard. Right. He advertised. 
And if you advertise in 506B, you blow your exemption. And then therefore you should have been selling a registered security. Okay, so how do you defend yourself? Well, there are some issues about that that aren't fully worked out. Some people say when you get the letter of intent on a property, you're probably contemplating, because the word contemplating is, is in the marketing. You're probably contemplating an offering, and I don't believe that, because you don't even know if you're going to get a purchase and sale agreement. Sure. And then some people say, well, as soon as you have the purchase and sale agreement, you're contemplating. No, you might wholesale that deal. You might buy that deal yourself. You might buy that deal in a member-managed LLC that's not going to be a security. So in my world, when you sign a fee agreement with me, you're contemplating a deal. Yep. And that all comes from my background. When I was selling my securities, everything was sold through the broker-dealer community. Mm -hmm. And they felt that they were contemplating selling my deal when they signed a due diligence contract with me. If everything went okay in due diligence, they would do my offering. So at that point, they were contemplating. So that's what I do. You sign a fee agreement with me. Now you're contemplating and your database freezes right. for people who can invest in this deal. And somehow in your database, you have a date when the people came in. It would be great if you had some sort of a pre-qualification questionnaire for everyone. And when you put them in your database and they filled out the questionnaire, are they accredited? Are they sophisticated? Have them sign it and date it. The SEC has always said that a pre-qualification questionnaire is one of the things they could look at to determine pre-existing. But it's not just pre-existing, it's pre-existing and substantive. Now you're getting to the issue of, is it just a Facebook like? No. And the definition of substantive is pretty, pretty uh, uh, complete. You've got to know enough about the investor to know if they're sophisticated or if they're accredited. And if on their own or with their advisors, they can actually read the documents, determine what the risk is, and determine if that's uh, suitable for them. And all part of that would be, does the investor know enough about you? Do you know enough about the investor? It's a two-way street, right? So that's very nebulous, very subjective, but it's pre-existing and substantive is what the definition is. Right, okay, thank you, that's, that's very helpful. Um, probably one last question for you, Gene. You mentioned your first multifamily deal after you kind of ran into these classic issues, uh, scaling a single family business yes. that a lot of us have run into. Can, can you tell us about that? What, what, what was that? Was that in California? What oh, was that Minnesota, back in Minnesota a long time ago. Okay. You're going to die at this. <laughs> we had a, uh, we, uh, we found a 10 unit apartment building in, okay. in St. Paul. All right. And, uh, uh, myself and uh, three other investors, all guys I'd gone to college with, we all put up $5,000 each. So $20,000 down on a $70,000 10 unit apartment building. And we bought it. One of the partners was an attorney. So he drafted the document. I was in real estate business. So I took care of uh, the day-to-day -day management uh, one of the other guys was an insurance agent, so he wrote the insurance and um, 
And one of the other guys was a CPA, so he took care of the books. And these were all guys who I'd either been my roommates or my buddies. Uh, we all owned houses. We all had a little extra money and we thought we'd be real estate investors. I like it. I like it. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. Um, I like that. Well, price you, know per Kenny, door. you know, Kenny Wolf, don't you? Oh yeah. 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 I interviewed Kenny yesterday on, on something I'm doing and he said his first deal was a 76 unit apartment building. And he, he felt he had to buy a big enough unit so he could have professional management Interesting. and make yeah. a statement. So it had to be an asset class that was professionally managed. And here you go. He didn't have enough money to buy it himself. I didn't have the 20000 And yep. so we went out to pool resources and we're on our way. Yep. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, for those listening, we're going to link to Gene's website. It's trowbridgelawgroup.com right there in the description. But again, I urge everyone to go watch the video because Gene was uh, gracious enough to put together a fantastic visual along with um, this educational component. So go, go find the video and, and take a look at that. But if you want to connect with Gene Trowbridge Law Group is a, is a way to do it. And we'll also uh, include the, the contact information. But um, Gene has been tremendous. I absolutely appreciate you coming to share your, your expertise and your experience with our, with our group. And if uh, you guys are looking for a syndication attorney out there, um, Gene is, is extremely well regarded in this space. So I, I encourage you to, to reach Well, that's out. great, Devin. Thanks for having me. And maybe sometime in the future, I'll come back. I've got, a, I've got something that we could cover uh, specifically the word sophisticated, pre-existing, and substantive in some, in some depth. Um, Outstanding. That yeah, maybe that would be. after people have seen me once, a couple months later, they might want to see me again and be happy to do it. Fantastic. Well, let's, we'll, we'll set it up. I would, uh, I would love to have that opportunity. Good. Thanks, Evan. Gene, have a great one. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.